Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is Venezuela. This is in the New York Post. Trump recognises Juan Guaido as president of Venezuela. President Trump said Wednesday that all options are on the table if Venezuelan dictator Nicolas Maduro does not peacefully leave office after Trump recognised the head of Venezuela's National Assembly as president of the strife-torn country. We're not considering anything but all options on the table. All options, always, all options are on the table, said Trump, when asked about military intervention, an action he first mentioned in 2017. Trump earlier recognised Juan Guaido as president and hundreds of thousands of anti-government protesters swarmed the streets of Caracas, the capital, and other cities. Today I am officially recognising the president of the Venezuelan National Assembly, Juan Guaido, as the interim president of Venezuela, Trump said in a statement. In its role is the only legitimate branch of government duly elected by the Venezuelan people. The National Assembly invoked the country's constitution to declare Nicolas Maduro illegitimate and the office of the presidency therefore vacant, he continued. The people of Venezuela have courageously spoken out against Maduro and his regime and demanded freedom and the rule of law. The article goes on. The commander-in-chief said he would use America's economic and diplomatic powers to help restore democracy to the country, and he encouraged other nations in the Western Hemisphere to also recognise Guado. He also warned Maduro, who remained in Miraflores, the presidential residence in Caracas, about crackdowns on Venezuelan protesters or reprisals against opposition figures. We continue to hold the illegitimate Maduro regime directly responsible for any threats it may pose to the safety of the Venezuelan people. As interim president Guado noted yesterday, violence is the usurper's weapon. We only have one clear action, to remain united and firm for a democratic and free Venezuela, Trump concluded. Maduro and his supporters, which includes the military so far, planned a counter-protest Wednesday at Miraflores. Team Trump hopes to exploit the outrage sweeping the impoverished nation against hardline Maduro, whose economic policies have left the country on the brink of collapse. Vice President Pence had earlier delivered a video message to the Venezuelan people calling Maduro a dictator with no legitimate claim to power, and recognising the National Assembly as the last vestige of democracy in the country. The senior official said the administration had barely scratched the surface of the economic sanctions that could be slapped on the country. This is nothing new. The United States has been seeking for a long time to regime change Venezuela. They were seeking to unseat Chavez, Hugo Chavez, and then Maduro took over and they've been trying to unseat him. And they've all but done it, except Maduro is refusing to leave. There's a familiar technique in manufacturing a situation where the country descends into civil war and chaos, and the tyrannical dictator is removed and installed in their place as a West-favoured leader. It's a coup, and what we're seeing now in Venezuela is a coup. This technique was used in Libya. They tried it in Syria, although it didn't quite work. The same for Ukraine, Georgia, Egypt, etc. And if it works, why change it? In Libya, the blueprint played out with the US funding, arming and training rebels to attack the Gaddafi regime. And at this point, there's no media or government condemnation. And then, when the regime responds and retaliates, then the politicians can't get to the microphones and cameras quick enough to condemn the target regime and claim that the regime are killing their own people when in fact they're attacking the proxy army of the West and shooting back at being shot at. The leaders say that the West needs to invade on a humanitarian effort. This always involves Britain and America. The same 
Britain and America who condemn target regimes while selling arms to Saudi Arabia and Israel, not least because they're controlled by Israel. Weapons which they know will end up in the hands of terrorists in Saudi Arabia, which is the plan because that allows them to continue their foreign policy agenda, their geopolitical agenda. I call it moral outrage for hire. Condemn when it suits and support when it suits. The leaders of the West don't have morals, let alone moral outrage. Their moral outrage is dictated by their foreign policy agenda and those who control them, not least Israel. Saudi Arabia is a West ally, so there's no moral outrage. Israel controls the West, so there's no moral outrage. Syria, Russia, Libya, etc. are West targets, so there's calculated moral outrage for hire. There's an article here from 2006 in the New York Times on the subject of Libya and arms sales. US-approved arms for Libya rebels fell into jihadist hands. The Obama administration secretly gave its blessing to arms shipments to Libyan rebels from Qatar last year, but American officials later grew alarmed as evidence grew that Qatar was turning some of the weapons over to Islamic militants, according to United States officials and foreign diplomats. No evidence has emerged linking the weapons provided by the Qataris during the uprising against Colonel Muammar al Gaddafi to the attack that killed four Americans at the United States diplomatic compact in Benghazi, Libya in September. Of course, it was Gaddafi who the West invaded Libya to remove. The article goes on. But in the months before, the Obama administration clearly were worried about the consequences of its hidden hand in helping arm Libyan militants, concerns that have not previously been reported. The weapons and money from Qatar strengthened militant groups in Libya, allowing them to become a destabilizing force since the fall of the Gaddafi government. The experience in Libya has taken on new urgency as the administration considers whether to play a direct role in arming rebels in Syria, where weapons are flowing in from Qatar and other countries. The Obama administration did not initially raise objections when Qatar began shipping arms to opposition groups in Syria, even if it did not offer encouragement, according to current and former administration officials. But they said the United States has growing concerns that just as in Libya, the Qataris are equipping some of the wrong militants. The United States, which had only small numbers of CIA officers in Libya during the tumult of the rebellion, provided little oversight of the arms shipments. Within weeks of endorsing Qatar's plan to send weapons there in spring 2011, the White House began receiving reports that they were going to Islamic militant groups. They were more anti-democratic, more hardline, closer to an extreme version of Islam than the main rebel alliance in Libya, said a former Defense Department official. The Qatari assistance to fighters viewed as hostile by the United States demonstrates the Obama administration's continuing struggles in dealing with the Arab Spring uprisings. I'll get to the Arab Spring in a minute. The article goes on. The Qatari assistance to fighters viewed as hostile by the United States demonstrates the Obama administration's continuing struggles in dealing with the Arab Spring uprisings as it tries to support popular protest movements while avoiding American military entanglements. Relying on surrogates allows the United States to keep its fingerprints of operations but also means they may play out in ways that conflict with American interests. To do this right, you have to have on-the-ground intelligence and you have to have experience, said Vali Nasser, a former State Department advisor who is now Dean of the Paul H. Nitze School of Advanced International Studies, part of Johns Hopkins University. If you rely on a country that does not have those things, you are really flying blind. When you have an intermediary, you're going to lose control. 
He said that Quaytar would not have gone through with the arms shipments if the United States had resisted them, but other current and former administration officials said Washington had little leverage at times over Qatari officials. They marched to their own drummer, said a former senior State Department official. The White House and the State Department declined to comment. During the frantic early months of the Libyan rebellion, various players motivated by politics or profit, including an American arms dealer who proposed weapons transfers in an email exchange with the United States and Missouri later killed in Benghazi, sought to aid those trying to rouse Colonel Gaddafi. Around April 2011, Mahmoud Jibril, then the Prime Minister of the Libyan Transitional Government, expressed frustration to administration officials that the US was allowing Qatar to arm extremist groups opposed to the new leadership, according to several American officials. They, like nearly a dozen current and former White House, diplomatic, intelligence, military and foreign officials would speak only on the condition of anonymity for this article. The administration has never determined where all of the weapons paid for by Qatar and the United Arab Emirates went inside Libya, officials said. Qatar is believed to have shipped by air and sea small arms including machine guns, automatic rifles and ammunition for which it has demanded reimbursement from Libya's new government. Some of the arms since have been moved from Libya to militants with ties to al-Qaeda in Mali where radical jihadi factions have imposed Sharia law in the northern part of the country, the former Defense Department official said. Others have gone to Syria, according to several American and foreign officials and arms traders. Since 2011, with, after discussions among members of the National Security Council, after discussions among members of the National Security Council, the Obama administration backed the arms shipments from both countries, according to two former administration officials briefed on the talks. American officials say that the United Arab Emirates first approached the Obama administration during the early months of the Libyan uprising, asking for permission to ship American-built weapons that the United States had supplied for the Emirates' use. The administration rejected that request, but instead urged the Emirates to ship weapons to Libya that could not be traced to the United States. The UAE was asking for clearance to send U.S. weapons, said one former official. We told them it's okay to ship other weapons. For its part, Qatar supplied weapons made outside the United States, including French and Russian-designed arms, according to people familiar with the shipments. But the American support for the arms shipments from Qatar and the Emirates could not be completely hidden. NATO air and sea forces around Libya had to be alerted not to interdict the cargo planes and freighters transporting the arms into Libya from Qatar and the Emirates, American officials said. Concerns in Washington soon rose about the groups Qatar was supporting, officials said. A debate over what to do about the weapons shipments dominated at least one meeting of the so-called Deputies Committee, the interagency panel consisting of the second highest ranking officials and major agencies involved in national security. There was a lot of concern that the Qatar weapons were going to Islamist groups, one official recalled. The Qataris provided weapons, money and training to various rebel groups in Libya. One militia that received aid was controlled by Adel Hakim Belhaj, then leader of the Libyan Islamic fighting group who was held by the CIA in 2004 and is now considered a moderate politician in Libya. It is unclear which, it is unclear which other militants received the aid. The case of Mark Churi, the American arms merchant who had sought to provide weapons to Libya, demonstrates other challenges the United States faced in dealing with Libya. A dealer who lives in both Arizona and Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, Mr. Churi sells small arms to buyers in the Middle East and Africa, relying primarily on suppliers of Russian-designed weapons in Eastern Europe. In March 2011, just as the Libyan civil war was intensifying, Mr. Churi realized that Libya could be a lucrative new market and applied to the State Department 
for a license to provide weapons to the rebels there, according to emails and other documents he has provided. American citizens are required to obtain United States approval for any international arms sales. He also emailed J. Christopher Stevens, then the special representative to the Libyan Rebel Alliance. The diplomat said he would share Mr. Chory's proposal with colleagues in Washington according to emails provided by Mr. Chory. Mr. Stevens, who became the United States ambassador to Libya, was one of the four Americans killed in the Benghazi attack on September the 11th. Mr. Chory's application for a license was rejected in late March 2011. Undeterred, he applied again, this time stating only that he planned to ship arms worth more than $200 million to Qatar. In May 2011, his application was approved. Mr. Chory, in an interview, said that his intent was to get weapons to Qatar and that what the US government and Qatar allowed from there was between them. Two months later, though, his home near Phoenix was raided by agents from the Department of Homeland Security. Administration officials say he remains under investigation in connection with his arms dealings. The Justice Department would not comment. Mr. Chory said he believed that U.S. officials had shut down his proposed arms pipeline because he was getting in the way of the Obama administration's dealings with Qatar. The Qataris, he complained, imposed no controls on who got the weapons. They just handed them out like candy, he said. And here's an article in the Financial Times from May 2013. The gas-rich state of Qatar has spent as much as $3 billion over the past two years supporting the rebellion in Syria, far exceeding any other government, but is now being nudged aside by Saudi Arabia as the prime source of arms to rebels. The cost of Qatar's intervention, its latest push to back an Arab revolt, amounts to a fraction of its international investment portfolio, but its financial support for the revolution that has turned into a vicious civil war dramatically overshadows Western backing for the opposition. In dozens of interviews with the Financial Times conducted in recent weeks, rebel leaders both abroad and within Syria as well as regional and western officials detail Qatar's role in the Syrian conflict to source of mounting controversy. The small state with a gargantuan appetite is the biggest donor to the political opposition, providing generous refugee packages to defectors. One estimate puts it at $50,000 a year for a defector and his family, and has provided vast amounts of humanitarian support. In September, many rebels in Syria's Aleppo province received a one-off payment of $150, courtesy of Qatar. Sources close to the Qatari government say total spending has reached as much as $3 billion, while rebel and diplomatic sources put the figure at $1 billion at most. For Qatar, its intervention in Syria is part of an aggressive quest for global recognition and is merely the latest chapter in its attempt to establish itself as a major player in the region, following its backing of Libya's rebels who overthrew Gaddafi in 2011. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, which tracks arms transfers, Qatar has sent the most weapons deliveries to Syria, with more than 70 military cargo flights into neighbouring Turkey between April 2012 and March this year, 2013. There's an article here on politico.com from 2016, October 20. And there's an article here on Politico.com from 2016. The Obama administration is moving to dismiss charges against an arms dealer he had accused of selling weapons that were destined for Libyan rebels. Lawyers for the Justice Department on Monday Lawyers for the Justice Department on Monday filed a motion in federal court in Phoenix to drop the case against the arms dealer, an American named Mark Chory, whose lawyers also signed the motion. 
The deal averts a trial that threatened to cast additional scrutiny on Hillary Clinton's private emails to Secretary of State and to expose reported CIA attempts to arm rebels fighting Libyan leader Gaddafi. Government lawyers were facing a Wednesday deadline to produce documents to Chora's legal team and the trial was officially set to begin on election day. Although it would likely have been delayed by protracted disputes about classified information in the case. A Tory associate asserted that the government dropped the case because the proceedings could have embarrassed Clinton and President Obama by calling attention to the reported role of their administration in supplying weapons that fell into the hands of Islamic extremist militants. They don't want this stuff to come out because it will look really bad for Obama and Clinton just before the election, said the associate. In the dismissal motion, prosecutors say discovery rulings from U.S. District Court Judge David Campbell contributed to the decision to drop the case. The joint motion asked the judge to accept a confidential agreement to resolve the case through a civil settlement between the State Department and the arms broker. A State Department official confirmed the outlines of the agreement. Whereby Chori admits no guilt in the transactions he participated in, but he agreed to refrain from U.S. regulated arms dealing for four years. A $200,000 civil penalty will be waived if Chori abides by the agreement. Tory advisor Robert Strickland. Representatives of the Justice Department, the White House and Clinton's presidential campaign either declined to comment or did not respond to requests for comment. Isn't that the same thing? Anyway either declined to comment or did not respond to requests for comment on the case or the settlement. Chory was indicted in 2014 on four felony counts, two of arms dealing in violation of the Arms Export Control Act and two of lying to the State Department in official applications. The charges accused Chory of claiming that the weapons involved were destined for Qatar and the United Arab the charges accused Chori of claiming that the weapons involved were destined for Qatar and the United Arab Emirates when the arms were actually intended to reach Libya. Chori's lawyers argued that the shipments were part of a US government authorised effort to arm Libyan rebels. WikiLeaks head Julian Assange in July suggested he had emails proving that Clinton pushed the flows of weapons going over to Syria. 
Additionally, Chury's case had delved into emails sent to and from the controversial private account that Clinton used as Secretary of State, which the defence planned to harness at any trial. Chury's defence was pressing for more documents about the alleged rebel arming effort and for testimony from officials who worked on the issue for the State Department and the CIA. The defence said it planned to argue that Chory believed he had official permission to work. The defence said it planned to argue that Chory believed he had official permission to work on arms transfers to Libya. If we armed the rebels, as publicly reported in many, many sources, and as we strongly believe happened, and as we believe at least one witness told the grand jury, then documents about that process relate to that effort. said Jean-Jacques Cabou, a Perkins Coy partner serving as court-appointed defence counsel in the case. At the same hearing last year. If we armed the rebels, as publicly reported in many, many sources, and as we strongly believe if we armed the rebels, as publicly reported in many, many sources, and as we strongly believe happened, and as we believe at least one witness told the grand jury, then documents about that process relate to that effort. Kabu said at the same hearing last year, and Kabu was... Jean-Jacques Cabou, a Perkins Coy partner serving as court-appointed defence counsel in the case. Basically, what this was is a guy who was involved with arms sales, saying that if he goes down for it, then he's going to make sure that Hillary Clinton and Obama's role in it is exposed as well.
This is an article in The Independent from March 2017. This is said to be a quote from an email released by WikiLeaks. An email from 2002 from the Zionist Hillary Clinton. I talk about Zionism in episode 10 as well as other episodes. The quote says, Unlike in Libya, a successful intervention in Syria would require substantial diplomatic and military leadership from the United States. Washington should start by expressing its willingness to work with regional allies like Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Qatar to organize, train and arm Syrian rebel forces. The announcement of such a decision would by itself likely cause substantial defections from the Syrian military. Then, using territory in Turkey and possibly Jordan, US diplomats and Pentagon officials can start strengthening the opposition. Former French Foreign Affairs Minister Roland Dumas said in an interview that, I'm going to tell you something. I was in England two years before the violence in Syria on other business. I met with top British officials who confessed to me that they were preparing something in Syria. This was in Britain, not in America. Britain was organising an invasion of rebels into Syria. They even asked me, although I was no longer Minister for Foreign Affairs, if I would like to participate. Naturally, I refused. I said, I'm French. That doesn't interest me. This operation goes way back. It was prepared, preconceived and planned. In the region, it is important to know that this Syrian regime has a very anti-Israeli stance. Consequently, everything that moves in the region, and I have this from the former Israeli Prime Minister who told me, will try to get on with our neighbours, but those who don't agree with this will be destroyed. I talk about Syria in more detail in the previous episode, episode 48. Now, I mentioned Zionism earlier. There's a mega-Zionist we need to introduce at some point in this story, and his name is George Soros. I talk about him in episode 3 and 47. And he's very relevant to regime change through his network of organizations around the world like the Open Society Foundation and the International Crisis Group. And these organizations orchestrate fake people's revolutions like the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Call it a color, keep it simple. The Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia, the Lotus Revolution in Egypt and so on, which are manipulated events where the West can take over the country and install leaders that suit the West's geopolitical agenda. Another definition of the word revolution is an instance of revolving, turning, and that sums up exactly the plan behind people's revolutions. Remove a so-called tyrant with another tyrant that suits any given stage of the agenda. The revolving door of western-backed tyrants spins forever. There's a very clever sleight of hand when it comes to justifying invasions and protecting sovereignty, which was described by Soros in Foreign Policy magazine, later sold to Amazon, and he said... True sovereignty belongs to the people, who in turn delegate it to their governments. If governments abuse the authority entrusted to them, and citizens have no opportunity to correct such abuses, outside interference is justified. By specifying that sovereignty is based on the people, the international community can penetrate nation-states' borders to protect the rights of citizens. In particular, the principle of the people's sovereignty can help solve two modern challenges the obstacles to delivering aid effectively to sovereign states, and the obstacles to global collective action dealing with states experiencing internal conflict. Indeed, the rulers of a sovereign state have a responsibility to protect the state's citizens. When they fail to do so, their responsibility is transferred to the international community. Global attention is often only global attention is often the only lifeline available to the oppressed. In other words, if you change the definition of sovereignty from the government to the people, 
you can claim to be protecting the people's sovereignty in the face of a dictatorial regime and remove the dictator without officially intervening in the country's sovereignty, thus protecting, officially anyway, democracy and sovereignty. This later became the principle of the responsibility to protect, which was adopted by the United Nations and is based upon the underlying premise that sovereignty entails a responsibility to protect all populations from mass atrocity crimes and human rights violations. The principle is based on a respect for the norms and principles of international law, especially the underlying principles of law relating to sovereignty, peace and security, human rights and armed conflict. Well, that sounds good, except that it's just the principle that Soros described in that magazine article. It's claimed now that the government of Maduro in Venezuela is no longer legitimate, and this is all part of removing sovereignty. Soros and the elite he represents want an end to sovereignty for everyone. The claim of a regime threatening sovereignty is just an excuse to justify invasion, nothing more. The Soros-manipulated Tunisia revolution led to uprisings in Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria and Bahrain. This became known as the Arab Spring, which I've seen described very succinctly as people with brown faces being played off against people with brown faces so people with white faces can steal their land. And that's exactly the situation. It's a coup. It's all pre-planned, long-planned, cold, calculated manipulation. George Soros was behind the revolution coup in Ukraine, which unseated Yanukovych as part of the Orange Revolution in 2004, after Yanukovych rejected to sign an association agreement with the EU in favour of the Eurasian Economic Union and Russia. Then Yanukovych was voted back into power in 2010 when the Ukrainian people didn't like the other guy, the amount of the Ukrainian people that voted for that anyway. And then a second coup placed into power another West puppet in the form of Petro Poroshenko, who was installed in a coup in Ukraine by Soros in the US in 2014. Victoria Newland, Zionist, and the US Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs was fundamental in the installation of Poroshenko. So what does that mean? Well, it means this. Newland is married to Robert Kagan, founding member of an organisation called the Project for the New American Century. Newland was also exposed in a leaked phone call to the US ambassador to Ukraine, talking about who she wanted in the Ukraine government. Early last year, we had the outrageous bombing of Syria by the Zionist Donald Trump on the pretext that Assad was behind a suspected chemical attack, when a chemical attack is the last thing Assad would do because that would just give the West the ammunition they're looking for. John Bolton, Zionist and former ambassador for the US under George Bush, George W. Bush, and now, ludicrously, National Security Advisor to Trump, was involved with an organisation I mentioned just now called the Project for the New American Century. The Project for the New American Century was peopled by those who were directly or indirectly involved with the Bush administration, and they produced a document in September 2000 called Rebuilding America's Defences, Strategy, Forces and Resources for a New Century, which called for a series of regime changes in the Middle, Near East and North Africa. The list has played out since with manufactured pretexts for each invasion and regime change. Named in this document as countries to regime change were Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Libya, North Korea and Yemen. Any of those sound familiar? One year before 9-11, this document was published. 
Afghanistan was invaded after 9-11 on the claim that Bin Laden orchestrated 9-11 from Afghanistan. Another country on that list was invaded two years after 9-11 in 2003, Iraq, and other countries have continued to be ticked off. A policy document drawn up in 1996 by a study group led by Richard Pearl, Zionist and Project for the New American Century member later on, called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm, talks about invading Iraq because of weapons of mass destruction. This is in 1996, and using a proxy army to target Syria. That's what happened. The key point is this. When that wish list began being ticked off, George W. Bush, Zionist, and Blair, Zionist, were in power. Now we have Trump, Zionist, and Theresa May, Zionist, and the same list is being ticked off because political leaders don't make decisions. They're just vessels and vehicles for the elite's agenda. The elite need a public face to hide behind so they're not identified and also so through the media and clueless politicians the agenda can be brought into society seemingly randomly and spontaneously when it's all been long planned and this is where compartmentalization comes in. I explained the structure through which this agenda operates in episode 24. John Bolton along with another Zionist called Elliot Abrams, are involved now with this coup in Venezuela. So let's move on to Venezuela now. That was the background, or some of it anyway. Nicolas Maduro came into power in Venezuela in 2013, following the death of Hugo Chavez. Very soon after and ever since, Venezuela has been hit by crime, inflation, poverty and hunger. The United States would say this, along with him being an apparent dictator, is reason enough to justify overthrowing him. However, as far back as 2014, Venezuelan officials and Maduro. However, as far back as 2014, Venezuelan officials and Maduro himself have been hit by sanctions. This is a common theme. Target countries or people in positions of power are hit with sanctions as part of the overthrow agenda. In 2014, Venezuelan officials were hit by sanctions because of mistreatment of protesters in the 2014 Venezuelan protests. How many of those protesters were there to kick off the protests, specifically, on behalf of the West? There's an article here from theheal.com about Venezuelan sanctions from 2014, May 2014. House, I think this is the House of Representatives, passes Venezuela sanctions bill. The House on Wednesday gave voice vote approval to a bill to impose sanctions against Venezuelan government officials responsible for human rights abuses against protesters. At least 42 people have died and more than 100 have been injured in the demonstrations across Venezuela. Protests began in Venezuela earlier this year, largely in opposition to President Nicolas Maduro's handling of crime in the economy, including price controls that have led to inflation. International concern about human rights in Venezuela emerged after a judge issued an arrest warrant against opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez, who later turned himself into authorities and is now being held in a military prison. Members of both US political parties said the measure will provide support to pro-democracy protesters. We are today to condemn the ongoing human rights abuses being committed in Venezuela and to answer the cries of the people of Venezuela, said bill sponsor Representative Ileana Ross Latinan. The sanctions would include freezing Venezuelan government officials' assets and preventing them entry to the U.S. Republican Jacqueline Castro said the measure would boost the U.S. 
position while Venezuela works to reach a solution on its own. I love this quote. This is brilliant. It says, I continue to believe the dialogue is the best way out of the crisis. In the meantime, the legislation we are considering today makes it clear the United States will not turn a blind eye to human rights violations, Castro said. Of course, because the United States is famous for condemning and sanctioning countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and Israel for their human rights violations, isn't it? United States will not turn a blind eye to human rights violations. It does it all the time. The article goes on. In addition to sanctions, the measure would authorize $5 million to be spent on behalf of assistance to Venezuelan civilians. There's another article here. From Reuters.com from March 2015. U.S. declares Venezuela a national security threat, sanctions top officials. The United States declared Venezuela a national security threat on Monday and ordered sanctions against seven officials from the oil-rich country in the worst bilateral diplomatic dispute since Socialist President Nicolas Maduro took office in 2013. U.S. President Barack Obama signed and issued the executive order which senior administration officials said did not target Venezuela's energy sector or broader economy. But the move stokes tensions between Washington and Caracas just as U.S. relations with Cuba, a long-time U.S. foe in Latin America and key ally to Venezuela, are set to be normalized. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro denounced the sanctions as an attempt to topple his government. At the end of a thundering two-hour speech, Maduro said he would seek decree powers to counter the imperialist threat and appointed one of the sanctioned officials as the new interior minister. Declaring any country a threat to national security is the first step in starting a U.S. sanctions program. The same process has been followed with countries such as Iran and Syria, U.S. officials said. The White House said the order targeted people whose actions undermine democratic processes or institutions, had committed acts of violence or abuse of human rights, were involved in prohibiting or penalizing freedom of expression, or were government officials involved in public corruption. Saudi Arabia and Israel... Nah, don't worry about them. Because they care, you see. They do all this because they care. Here's a great quote from White House spokesman Josh Ernest. We are deeply concerned by the Venezuelan government's efforts to escalate intimidation of its political opponents. The US doesn't care what happens to their political opponents, though, do they? Or the people that live in those countries. The individuals in Maduro's government sanction would have their property and interests in the United States blocked or frozen and would be denied entry into the United States. U.S. citizens and permanent residents would be prohibited from doing business with them. And then, after what that article talked about, in 2017, the Venezuelan government was sanctioned again and barred from accessing U.S. funding. Also, the United States has limited the amount of oil it will import from Venezuela. According to an article on the Reuters website, again, Washington's recent sanctions against Venezuelan state-run oil company PDVSA have started to ensnare its U.S. unit, Sitgo Petroleum, making it harder for the refiner to obtain the credit it needs to purchase crude, according to six traders and banking sources. And also, U.S. sanctions against Venezuelan debt issuances also obviously affected the Venezuelan economy. $1.2 billion of gold is being kept away from Venezuela. There's an article here in Bloomberg about that. This is from January this year. Majoro stymied in bid to pull $1.2 billion of gold from UK. 
Nicolas Maduro's embattled Venezuelan regime, desperate to hold on to the dwindling cash pile it has abroad, was stymied in its bid to pull $1.2 billion worth of gold out of the Bank of England, according to people familiar with the matter. The Bank of England's decision to deny Maduro officials' withdrawal request comes after top US officials, including Secretary of State Michael Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton, mentioned him earlier. What that should say is, including Secretary of State and Zionist Michael Pompeo, and National Security Advisor and Zionist John Bolton, as I said earlier, lobbied their UK counterparts to help cut off the regime from its overseas assets, according to one of the people who asked not to be identified. The UK followed the US and other countries on Wednesday in recognising Juan Guaido, the National Assembly leader, as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Maduro refuses to give up power, though, and has the backing of the military. The European Union threatened to recognise Guaido unless a credible presidential election is called with eight days according to a draft statement seen by Bloomberg. The US officials are trying to steer Venezuela's overseas assets to Guaido to help bolster his chances of effectively taking control of the government. The $1.2 billion of gold is a big chunk of the $8 billion in foreign reserves held by the Venezuelan central bank. The whereabouts of the rest of them is largely unknown. Turkey though was emerged recently as a destination for freshly mined Venezuelan gold. The US is leading an international effort to persuade Turkey, a key Maduro backer, along with Russia and China, to stop being a conduit for these gold shipments. We want democracy and free elections in Venezuela, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez said Saturday. I want to state absolutely clearly that if within eight days fair, free and transparent elections are not called in Venezuela, Spain will recognise Juan Guaido as president. Well, how can you want democracy when a leader targeted by America has been officially replaced just because this guy Juan Guaido was declared himself the official legitimate leader. How is that democratic? The article goes on. Retrieving the gold in the Bank of England has been a major priority for the Maduro regime for weeks. Back in mid-December, Calixto Ortega, the president of Venezuela's central bank, led a delegation to London that sought to gain access to it, according to two people, according to two people with knowledge of the matter. But those talks were unsuccessful, and communications between the two sides have broken down since. Central bank officials in Caracas have been ordered to no longer try contacting the Bank of England. These central bankers have been told that Bank of England staffers will not respond to them, citing compliance reasons, said a Venezuelan official who asked not to be identified. When asked about the fate of Venezuelan assets abroad Friday, Pompeo declined to comment, as did a spokesman for the National Security Council. The Treasury released a statement saying the US will use its economic and diplomatic tools to ensure that commercial transactions by the Venezuelan government, including those involving its state-owned enterprises and international reserves, are consistent with its recognition of Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela. Gold has formed a crucial part of Venezuela's foreign reserves for years. Hugo Chavez, the late socialist leader and mentor to Maduro, applied much of the country's oil wealth into gold, in part because of his disdain for the US dollar. In 2011, Chavez ordered the repatriation of $11 billion worth of gold bars from the Bank of England and other foreign institutions. As Venezuela fell deeper into economic crisis years later, though, the Maduro regime began selling them off to raise the cash it desperately needed to fund imports and to try unsuccessfully to avoid defaulting on its foreign debt. The first rule of business as we speak is to stop the Maduro government from liquidating international assets of the country and steal them. Ricardo Hausman, Harvard economics professor and long-term critic of Maduro, who's been speaking with Guaido, said in an interview Friday. This was published on January 25th. Funding political opposition 
is another method the U.S. has used to bring about regime change in Venezuela. There's an article here in The Guardian from August 2006. U.S. accused a bid to oust Chavez with secret funds. The U.S. government has been accused of trying to undermine the Chavez government in Venezuela by funding anonymous groups via its main international aid agency. Millions of dollars have been provided in a pro-democracy program that Chavez supporters claim is a covert attempt to bankroll an opposition to defeat the government. The money is being provided by the U.S. Agency for International Development through its Office of Transition Initiatives. The row follows the recent announcement that the U.S. had made $80 million, £42 million, available for groups seeking to bring about change in Cuba, whose leader Fidel Castro was a close ally of Mr. Chavez. Information about the grants has been obtained following a Freedom of Information request by the Associated Press. USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development, released copies of 132 contracts but obscured the names and other identifying details in nearly half the organizations. The Office of Transition Initiatives, which also works in such priority countries as Iraq, Afghanistan, Bolivia and Haiti, has overseen more than $26 million in grants to groups in Venezuela since 2002. Among the grants detailed in the information are one for $47,459 for a democratic leadership campaign, $37,614 for citizen meetings to discuss a shared vision for society, and one of $56,124 to analyse Venezuela's new constitution. What this indicates is that there is a great deal of money, a great deal of concern to oust or neutralise Chavez, said Larry Burns, director of the Council on Hemispheric Affairs in Washington yesterday. The US is waging diplomatic warfare against Venezuela. He said that while the US had accused Mr. Chavez of destabilising Latin American countries, the term destabilisation more aptly applied to what the US was trying to do to Mr. Chavez. Exactly. It's trying to implement regime change. Eva Gollinger, a Venezuelan-American lawyer who wrote the Chavez Code, cracking U.S. intervention in Venezuela, told AP, Associated Press. There's no doubt about it. I think the U.S. government tries to mask it by saying it's a noble mission. That's what they always say, humanitarian mission. And that would be perhaps more believable if they did the same in Saudi Arabia and Israel. President Chavez has also accused groups of taking American money and predicted that the U.S. will seek to use its influence in Venezuela's December polls. USAID officials denied any suggestion the money had any political aim. Of course it's got political aim. Why, why else are they using it? And said the reason for anonymity for some groups was to protect them from potential harassment. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. I love this. This is brilliant. The goal of the program is to strengthen democracy which is consistent with President Bush's freedom agenda. If it wasn't real, it would be hilarious. The goal of the program is to strengthen democracy, which is consistent with President Bush's freedom agenda, said a USAID official yesterday. Yeah, this is the same George Bush that, together with Tony Blair, lied to justify a catastrophic invasion in Iraq. That's how much Bush cares about freedom. The official said that the money was used to pay for a wide range of seminars, educational programs and even public service TV commercials aimed at promoting dialogue between pro and anti-Chavez camps. Other projects include workshops on conflict resolution, efforts to promote human rights and training for positive citizen involvement in our communities. That's the official line anyway. USAID also supports programs such as daycare centres for the poor, improvement for schools, junior sports teams and children's homes, the official said. 
The row comes just as China has agreed to invest $5 billion in energy projects in Venezuela, including the building of 13 oil rigs and 18 oil tankers. Venezuela's oil reserves wouldn't have anything to do with any of this, would they? By any chance, maybe? They had a lot of oil in Iraq, didn't they, I seem to remember. Funny that, isn't it? You look at all of this, and America will point to Maduro's economic mismanagement leading to the current crisis. Maduro will say it's the US and their allies plotting against him with sanctions in the various ways they've sought to depose him and using the at least partly manufactured chaos as an excuse to regime change the country. I would say it's most likely a bit of both, because all governments make mistakes, and I'm not saying Maduro is perfect. But the point is that when you put all of this together, I'm not saying there's no reason that the people of Venezuela, because of the way that Maduro has handled the economy and the country, to be ousted. I can understand that. It's very clear that the idea the US wants to regime change Venezuela because of current events and for the benefit of the Venezuelan people is utterly ridiculous. That's the point. That's not why they're doing it. You can say what you like about Maduro and the way he's managed the economy and the country, but the point is the sanctions didn't help for a start, as I've said, and that's not the reason why the US is involved. Just as Saddam Hussein was nothing to do with the reason they wanted to go into Iraq. It's just an excuse. It's all part of the United States geopolitical agenda. And ultimately, the elite's geopolitical agenda through the United States. The irony is that the United States will talk about protecting sovereignty and democracy. The irony is that the United States will talk about protecting sovereignty and democracy. While leaving out the fact that it's their actions, at least in part, which have caused the revolution and installed their man in power. Also, Jean Guaido was just basically stood up and declared himself the new leader because the US says Maduro's leadership is no longer legitimate and refuses to recognize his leadership. How is any of that democratic? Trump said before he took office that the US needed to stop interfering in the affairs of other countries. One of the funniest lines in a presidential candidate's political campaign ever. Not funny, ha-ha funny, but funny as in it's funny because it's so obviously not the case and so ludicrous given the history of America and the people around Trump now. US will stop interfering in the affairs of other countries. The US only interferes in the affairs of other countries. Doesn't do anything to help anybody in other countries. Just wants to regime change them and invade them and take them over. That's all it does. Same with Britain. That's all Britain does. I talk in episode 38 about foreign aid. And I talk about what foreign aid is used for that does not involve helping the people we're told is there to help. Because that's not what Britain and America does. Without Britain, America, Israel. Actually, I repeat myself there because they're basically the same thing when it comes to foreign policy and geopolitical policy. But without Britain, America, Israel... Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, etc., basically the West allies, then the world would be a much more peaceful place and would have been throughout history. The Islamic State has fundamental links to Saudi Arabia. And as I've said, the US and Britain arm Saudi Arabia. 
and these arms end up with, or some of them at least end up with, Islamic militants, which the West knows will happen, that's the idea. The hypocrisy from Britain and America is stunning. Trump said the US needed to stop interfering in the affairs of other countries when they're now in Yemen and we've got this situation now in Venezuela. The majority of the efforts to regime change Venezuela happened before Trump took office, but Trump has continued it and is still doing so. This is the substance, background, context and connections you don't get in the mainstream media because the journalists just don't know. The -the run-of-the-mill journalist has no research. They just take the official line. And if people were more aware of these regime changes and understood the relevance of them, then it would be much harder for these regime changes to happen because they can only happen as a result of ignorance and apathy. The apathy comes from not understanding the relevance and therefore importance of them. They can only sell the regime changes while people are ignorant of them. The way the media portrays them makes them seem random and spontaneous and isolated and therefore unimportant. This doesn't mean to say we have to know about every next move or every last detail. Of course not, but to understand the overview of the situation is important and to understand the overall agenda is important so we can understand when the next revolution or invasion happens, why it's happening and where it's going. And the next subject this week is Facebook and elections. This is in The Guardian. Facebook to create war room to fight fake news, Nick Clegg says. Facebook will tackle political misinformation in the run-up to the EU elections this May with a new war room based in Dublin, the company's incoming communications chief, Nick Clegg, has announced. In his first speech as Facebook's top public face, that was Zuckerberg, Clegg said the company would be setting up an operations centre focused on elections integrity based in Dublin this spring. The centre will build on the company's previous experience running an elections war room in its US office where it coordinated efforts to police the platform during the US midterm and Brazilian presidential elections. This approach will help boost our rapid response efforts to fight misinformation, bringing together dozens of experts from across the company, including from our threat intelligence, data science, engineering, research, community operations and legal teams, Clegg said. They will work closely with the lawmakers, election commissions, other tech companies, academics and civil society groups to continue the fight against fake news, prevent the spread of voter suppression efforts and further integrate the large number of teams working on these important issues across Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. In Clegg's speech made to an audience of European policymakers in Brussels and live streamed on Facebook, Clegg accepted that the company had erred in the past but said it was on a path of improvement. (laughs) Not from what I can see, it's getting worse. What I have seen in my short time at Facebook is a young company, only 15 years old next month, which has grown at a startling pace, has undoubtedly made mistakes and is now entering a new phase of reform, responsibility and change. And if you believe that, you believe anything. The article goes on. The former Liberal Democrat leaders have Facebook a work to bolster its content review team with more than 30,000 people around the world working on security and safety on the site. Clegg also said the company was continuing to work on a way for people to appeal against content decisions to an independent entity sitting outside of the company. A content review board once described by his boss Mark Zuckerberg as a supreme core of Facebook. Clegg added that Facebook would soon be publishing a draft charter for the board and opening it up to input from experts. However, later in the hour-long speech, Clegg went on the offensive, arguing that we must avoid legitimate questions about data-driven businesses evolving into an outright rejection of data-sharing and innovation. 
Why? Why should those questions be avoided? And echoing Zuckerberg's regular warning that attempts to clamp down on data harvesting by American businesses risk handing the future of innovation to China. The Chinese approach could well lead to some large-scale improvements like better health outcomes, benefits derived from the mass capture and analysis of data, but it could equally be put to more sinister surveillance ends, as we have seen with the Chinese government's controversial social credit system, Clegg said. It's also one of the most surveilled and censored populations and countries on Earth. It's in many ways a blueprint for where they want the world to go. The article goes on. When he was hired in late 2018, Clegg said he had decided to take the role after deciding there was nothing more he could do in the fight against Brexit. The Brexit drama will soon move to and possibly culminate in the place where it arguably belonged all along, in Parliament. I will no longer seek to play a public role in that debate, he wrote in a Guardian article explaining his decision. And there's another article here. Facebook restricts campaigners' ability to check ads for political transparency. This is also in The Guardian. Facebook has restricted the ability of external political transparency campaigners to monitor adverts placed on the social network in a move described as an appalling look by one of the organisations affected. This is the same organisation that is setting up a war room to check for political misinformation. Who Targets Me, a British group dedicated to scrutinising adverts on the social network, has said its activities have been severely restricted by recent changes made by the social network. The change has also hit a similar programme by the US investigative journalism site ProPublica, affecting both groups' ability to collect data on why users are being targeted by political campaigners. The monitoring tools, which involve asking users to install a browser plugin and collecting data on the average they see, has helped expose many of the advertising tactics used by politicians, making it harder for those who pay for negative adverts to escape scrutiny. Ten days ago, our software stopped working and efforts to fix it proved much harder than before, said Who Tigers Mika founder Sam Jeffers. He said he feared his service could soon be in effect locked out of Facebook altogether. Facebook is deliberately obfuscating their code when we have made small changes they've responded with further updates within hours. This comes in a year when over a third of the world's population has the opportunity to vote, with elections across the EU, India, Canada, Australia, South Africa, Israel and Ukraine to name a few. As an overview, they are actively trying to stop our project from gathering data about the ads they run and the targeting of those ads. Obviously we think this is the wrong decision. The article goes on. Facebook said the change was part of a wider crackdown on third-party plugins such as ad blockers accessing unauthorized data from its site, although the 20,000 people who have signed up to Who Targets Me have chosen to share their data with the service. We regularly improve the way we prevent unauthorized access by third parties like web browser plugins to keep people's information safe, said Facebook spokesperson Beth Gautier. This was a routine update and applied to ad blocking and ad scraping plugins which can expose people's information to bad actors in ways they did not expect. Bad actor means an individual or entity with a prior criminal conviction or or who has been sanctioned by the court or regulator. In the legal sense, a bad actor is also used in financial regulations, in not allowing such people or companies to participate in certain regulated processes or to take advantage of certain privileges. The article goes on. Who Targets Me was founded ahead of the 2017 general election in response to concerns about the impact of online advertising during the EU referendum when millions of pounds were spent on Facebook advertising by both Leave and Remain with little scrutiny of what voters were seeing. Data collected by the UK organisation has helped to show how the Conservatives were focusing on personal criticism of Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott during the end of the 2017 campaign. As if they need to collect data for that. 
because however much data they collect, there's going to be a whole lot more coming along soon. Criticism of Diane Abbott. Waste of time. The article goes on. In addition to using a loophole in electoral law to campaign on local issues through targeted Facebook ads without breaking spending limits. In addition, its tool has helped Who Targets Me to monitor elections around the world, with the site highlighting unusual advertising practices during Germany's elections and in Ireland during the country's referendum on abortion. A similar ad monitoring tool established by ProPublica has also been affected by the changes. That tool had resulted in negative stories for the social networks, such as exposing how oil companies are sidestepping Facebook's new ad transparency tools, among other issues. At the end of 2018, Facebook launched its own political ad archive, a move broadly welcomed by campaigners that has already resulted in additional scrutiny of political advertisers on the service, including the government and obscure pro-Brexit campaign groups. However, the social network has also been slow to give direct access to the new database to journalists and researchers, while it is currently only available in the US, UK and Brazil, although it plans to roll it out across the EU before this spring's European Parliament elections. Facebook has insisted its in-house transparency page is industry-leading, but Jeffers said it is still inadequate as it doesn't provide meaningful information about why a user is being targeted or who is ultimately behind such advertising. Facebook are fine ones to talk about election manipulation and political misinformation. Facebook are manipulating elections, not least through their censorship and algorithmic manipulation of information on their website. What dictates people's actions and attitudes towards anything? Perception. What dictates perception? Information. If you can manipulate perception, you manipulate people's actions in relation to the manipulated perception. This is what the social media giants are doing with their censorship, which I talk about in episode This is what the social media giants are doing with their censorship, which I talk about in episode 27. This war room talked about in this article is just the next level of censorship and perceptual manipulation. Political misinformation really means any information relating to politics which challenges the official narrative. There's an article here in The Guardian from March 2018 relating to Facebook and its ability to influence elections. Leaked Cambridge Analytica's blueprint for Trump victory. The blueprint for how Cambridge Analytica claimed to have won the White House for Donald Trump by using Google, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube is revealed for the first time in an internal company document obtained by The Guardian. I talk about the Cambridge Analytica scandal in episode 12. The article goes on. The 27-page presentation was produced by the Cambridge Analytica officials who worked most closely on Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. A former employee explains to The Guardian how it details the techniques used by the Trump campaign to micro-target US voters with carefully tailored messages about the Republican nominee across digital channels. Intensive survey research data modelling and performance optimising algorithms were used to target 10,000 different ads to different audiences in the months leading up to the election. The ads were reviewed billions of times according to the presentation. The document was presented to Cambridge Analytica employees in London, New York and Washington DC weeks after Trump's victory, providing an insight into how the controversial firm helped pull off one of the most dramatic political upsets in modern history. This is the debrief of the data-driven digital campaign that has employed This is the debrief of the data-driven digital campaign that was employed for Mr. Trump, said Brittany Kaiser 30, who was Cambridge Analytica's business development director until two weeks ago when she left over a contractual dispute. She is the second former employee to come forward in less than a week, talking exclusively to The Guardian about the inner workings of the firm, including the work she said it conducted on the UK's EU membership referendum. 
She said she had access to a copy of the same document now obtained by The Guardian and had used it to showcase the campaign's secret methods to potential clients of Cambridge Analytica. There was a huge demand internally for people to see how we did it, Kaiser said of the 2016 race. Everyone wanted to know, past clients, future clients, the whole world wanted to see it. This is what we were allowed to confidentially show people if they signed a non-disclosure agreement. Cambridge Analytica has a reputation among political operatives for exaggerating its role in campaigns. A senior Trump campaign official who said they saw the document about a year ago claimed it took credit for some work that was done by the Republican National Committee and Trump's digital director Brad Parscale. Kaiser did not work on the campaign but said she gleaned information about how it was orchestrated during discussions with senior staff, including the now suspended chief executive Alexander Nix. Cambridge Analytica is currently being investigated on both sides of the Atlantic and is a key subject in two inquiries in the UK by the Electoral Commission into the firm's possible role in the EU referendum and the Information Commissioner's Office into data analytics for political purposes and one in the US as part of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's probe into Trump-Russia collusion. Just a point on the Trump-Russia collusion thing. What that's done is made it very, very difficult now for Trump to try to get closer to Russia even if he feels that's what should happen, because if he does and goes against what those around him in his administration, the Zionists around him, would want him to do, would want him to do, then he's just going to be accused of siding with Russia and, oh, he's just an agent for Russia and all that stuff. The article goes on. And a possible role in the EU referendum by Cambridge Analytica. There seems to be a desire to blame Brexit on anything other than what it really was which was people finally having a way to make their voices heard the people who've been ignored the working class people and others who've been ignored all this time the article goes on none of the techniques described in the document are illegal however the scandal over cambridge analytica's acquisition of data for more none of the techniques described in the document are illegal However, the scandal over Cambridge Analytica's acquisition of data for more than 15 million Facebook users is lifting the lid on an industry that has learned how to closely track the online footprint in daily lives of US voters. Despite the advances made in data-led political campaigning, these were techniques that, according to the presentation, Trump did not have access to when Cambridge Analytica joined his campaign in early June 2016. The Republican nominee, who had just secured sufficient delegates to become the party's candidate, still had no speakable data infrastructure and no unifying data, digital and tech strategy, the document states. Kaiser said Cambridge Analytica staff told her they were stunned when they arrived at Trump's headquarters in Trump Tower, New York. There was no database of record. There were many disparate data sources that were not connected, matched or hygiened, she said at the process of ordering, sorting and cleaning enormous data sets. Data cleansing is the process of detecting and correcting corrupt or inaccurate records and refers to identifying incomplete, incorrect, inaccurate or relevant parts of the data and then replacing, modifying or deleting the dirty or coarse data. There was no data science program so they were not undertaking any modelling. There was no digital marketing team, she said. One of the first things Cambridge Analytica did, she said, was work with data supplied by the party's data trust and other data acquired through an initiative called Project Alamo. The document contains very little information about how the campaign used Facebook data, 
One page, however, suggests Cambridge Analytica was able to constantly monitor the effectiveness of its messaging on different types of voters, giving the company and the campaign constant feedback about levels of engagement on platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Snapchat. The feedback loop meant the algorithms, which are basically computer codes that you create and then it, they run the same every time without you having to do anything. The feedback loop meant the algorithms could be constantly updated and improved to deliver thousands of different messages to voters depending on their profile. The level of information the company could glean about voters and the apparent appetite among Silicon Valley companies to cash in on the advertising bonanza is illustrated on another page which shows how the Trump campaign used a prime piece of marketing real estate on election day, YouTube's entire masthead. Kaiser said Hillary Clinton's campaign had reserved the space on Google's video hosting platform but was so confident of victory that it gave up. Google quarters and said this ad space is now available immediately, Kaiser said. That's what I was told. The Trump campaign seized the opportunity, showing two different ads to different categories of voters according to the detailed geographical information of visitors to the YouTube homepage. Voters in areas where people were likely to be Trump supporters were shown a triumphant-looking image of the nominee and helped finding their nearest polling station. Those whose geographical information suggested they were not fervent Trump supporters such as swing voters were shown photos of his high-profile supporters including his daughter Ivanka Trump, a celebrity from the reality TV show Duck Dynasty and Dana White, the president of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. One of the most effective ads, according to Kaiser, was a piece of native advertising on the political news website Politica, which was also profiled in the presentation. The interactive graphic, which looked like a piece of journalism and purported to list 10 inconvenient truths about the Clinton Foundation, appeared for several weeks to people from a list of key swing states when they visited the site. It was produced by the in-house Politico team that creates sponsored content. The Cambridge Analytica presentation dedicates an entire slide to the ad, which is described as having achieved an average engagement time of four minutes. Kaiser described this ad as the most successful thing we pushed out. Politico said editorial journalists were not involved in the campaign and similar ads were purchased by the Bernie Sanders and Clinton campaigns. Advertisements on Facebook, Twitter, Google and the music sharing app Pandora were used to help convince 35,000 supporters to install an app used by the most active supporters. According to the presentation, Cambridge Analytica and the Trump campaign also used a new advertising technique offered by Twitter, launched at the start of the election year, which enabled clients to kickstart viral tweets. The conversational ads feature was used to encourage Trump's followers to tweet using a set of predetermined hashtags. The campaign also took advantage of an ad opportunity provided by Snapchat, enabling users to swipe up and immediately see a preloaded web page. While not useful for securing donors, Cambridge Analytica deemed the tool useful for engaging potential voter contacts, according to the presentation. One of the final slides explains how the company used pay for Google Ads to implement persuasion search advertising to push pro-Trump and anti-Clinton search results through the company's main search facility. One slide showed how the company ensured that voters searching the words Trump-Iraq war would encounter paid-for search results that were favourable to his campaign. Control the first impression, the slide says, with an arrow pointing to a search result that states Hillary voted for the Iraq war, Donald Trump opposed it. That's a Google manipulation thing, Kaiser said, adding that while a general person probably did not know how easy it was to pay for ads to appear high in Google search results, it was considered an old-school tactic in her industry. I've said before that Trump is perfect for the elite, which Facebook through DARPA are connected to, with DARPA being the technological development arm of the Pentagon, and so therefore obviously connected to the intelligence arena. I explain more about how Silicon Valley is connected to the intelligence arena in episode 19. Trump is potentially the most Zionist president America's ever had, and that says something when you look at the competition. 
Trump is surrounded by mega Zionists in his administration. I talk about Zionism in episode 10, elite Zionism. Trump's in a position where if his actions suit the agenda, he can do it. But when he wants to do something against the agenda, then the neocon Zionists are there to ensure that doesn't happen. Trump is a source of division and diversion. I explain what I mean by that in episode 25 in terms of it being a diversion. Either you love Trump or you hate Trump. That's the perception. And he's a focus for people to blame everything on when he's just fronting up the elite's agenda just as every other president. Trump has brought aspects of the so-called alternative media into the political fold even though these are people who've been saying for years that no matter who you vote for, the agenda happens anyway. And that politicians, certain politicians who have some knowledge, um, political leaders are just vehicles for the agenda. They're just fronting it out. He's brought, he's brought certain people like that in the alternative media into the political fold by telling his constituency, because that's what aspects of the alternative media are now for Trump what they wanted to hear so they would encourage their listeners and viewers to vote for him and they would say vote for Trump and support Trump on their websites and they're now reporting American politics in exactly the same way as the mainstream so quite what's alternative about them I'd like to know Trump in many ways started the fake news scam and I explain what I mean by scam and its wider context in episodes 27 and 37 the claim was that aspects of the alternative media had spread fake news stories in support of Trump, which had been circulated and motivated people to vote for him. The election result was nothing to do with people making their voice heard that they didn't want Clinton, with her record of corruption and political manipulation, to be in office, of course. They didn't want Hillary Clinton in power with her record of manipulation over decades in the State Department. It wasn't people making a stand in an attempt to make their voice heard in a populist vote for a political candidate they believed, wrongly, I would say, would go against the establishment. I talk about populism in episode 34. None of that had anything to do with the election result. It was all down to fake news. That's the claim. This is, in one way, an attempt to stem the change in politics with populism, where people are sick of the old politics and are seeking candidates who are standing for the issues they've been silenced on or ignored on for so long. This is really about controlling which political information gets to people. And I just wonder whether Trump bringing aspects of the alternative media into the political fold is a double bluff. Get them to support Trump and claim that Trump really will make America great again and really will drain the swamp. Then watch their credibility disappear as Trump's presidency unfolds. I just wonder. I'm not saying it is, but just wonder. At least in part a double bluff anyway. We're seeing the monopolization of online information through social media and Google. And this was always the plan. Start by claiming to be about free expression and sharing information and giving people their own space online where they can post. And then, when you've gained a near monopoly, then start to increasingly reveal your true agenda, your true nature, which is what we're seeing happening now. These organizations are monsters, and the sooner that's revealed, the better, because there are alternatives. And while they may not have the bells and whistles that the social media giants have, the more alternatives are used, the more the monopoly of these social media giants is broken up. And that then allows information being censored by the social media giants to be communicated where people will see it. 
information people need to see. So finding alternatives is important before freedom disappears forever. And the next subject this week is gender. This is in the Daily Mail. Muslim parents take children out of school in protest accepts education lessons they claim are over-promoting homosexuality. A group of Muslim parents have staged a protest outside a primary school with a gay assistant head teacher after claiming its sex education program was over-promoting LGBT movements. Andrew Moffat, MBE, assistant head teacher at Parkfield Community School in Saltley, Birmingham, has been criticised by some parents for piloting a program called No Outsiders. Run alongside sex and relationship education lessons, the scheme promotes LGBT equality and challenges homophobia in primary schools. Books now being read by pupils at Parkville Community School include Mummy, Mama and Me and King and King, stories about same-sex relationships and marriages. But Mr Moffat, who is gay, has come under fire from some Muslim parents who believe homosexuality is a sin. Outraged mother Fatima Shah, who has taken a 10-year-old daughter out of the school, said it's inappropriate, totally wrong. Children are being told it's okay to be gay, yet 98% of children at this school are Muslim. It's a Muslim community. I've taken my daughter out and other parents have too. Enough is enough. Sex relationship education is being taught without our consent. We've not been informed about what is being taught. Mr Moffat is running what's called CHIPS, challenging homophobia in primary schools, and it's totally against Islamic beliefs. My child came home and told me, Am I okay to be a boy? It's confusing children about sexuality. I want my child to learn about English, math and science. I'm keeping my daughter away from the school until something is done. I've been paying £20 an hour tuition at home instead. And while Miss Shah is against LGBT equality... And while Miss Shah is... And while Miss Shah is against LGBT equality being taught at Parkfield, the 29-year-old insisted she believed that gay people should be treated with mutual respect. Speaking alongside other Muslim parents during a demonstration outside the school gates. The mother of three added, We believe in fundamental British values and believe gay people should be treated with mutual respect and without prejudice or discrimination just like any other human being. We respect the Equality Act and believe it can be implemented without the promotion of homosexuality. The same with the transgender propaganda. There's a difference between not discriminating and promoting. Why do we have to promote transgender inclusivity and awareness? Why do we have to raise awareness of transgender? Why do we have to raise awareness of fluid gender? How about just not discriminating against transgender people? Isn't that enough? You can let people know they won't be discriminated against without going to the lengths of promotion and propaganda that we're seeing with transgender or fluid gender. There is a difference between the two. The article goes on. Children have a naive and innocent picture of sexual relationships. At this age, it is inappropriate to teach them what is a gay or straight relationship. The school near the local community and parents have a different set of family values and morals and were opposed to an LGBT agenda that says being gay is okay. Our community ethos was not respected. We feel betrayed by the school. The article goes on. Others who spoke outside the school included mother of two, Mariam Ahmed. The 34-year-old who has helped organise a petition calling for change said no outsiders is not for our community. We have a different ethos. Mr Moffat is ever promoting LGBT movements. I have nothing against him and I fully respect his beliefs, but this should be stopped being taught in schools. It's not necessary. It's confusing children. Well, on that point, ultimately, the agenda is to confuse children. That's what all this transgender propaganda is about confusing children about their gender who were not confused before the article goes on the quote goes on 
My little girl is four. She's in reception and she came home asking me if it's okay to be a boy instead of a girl and is dressed up in her brother's clothes. She's four years old. Mohammed Saqib, 37, who has children aged 8, 9 and 10 at the school, added, I respect all religions, but why should sexuality be taught to primary school aged children? It's out of control. Mr. Moffat seems a friendly and good-natured guy, but he needs to respect us as Muslim parents. He needs to listen. Another mother who has children aged 7 and 11 added, Why does my 7-year-old girl need to be taught about same-sex marriages and homosexuality? She should be playing, having fun, and should be learning about English and maths. The curriculum is putting ideas into their heads. Well, I've talked about education before. The curriculum without promotion of gender is putting ideas into young kids' heads. Either irrelevant information or information designed to stimulate the left side of the brain at the expense of the right, more creative side. I talk more about education in episodes 10 and 21. One mother added, there's no need, this place is different, it's a 90% Muslim school. There's books on the curriculum like Mummy, Mama and Me, which promotes same-sex marriage and being lesbian. Just why is this needed? In 2014, Mr. Moffat resigned from Chilwell Croft Academy in Newton, Birmingham, following a backlash from parents after coming out during a school assembly. The school teacher has been at Parkville Community School for four years. In 2016, the 740-pupil school was deemed outstanding across the board by Ofsted, and a year later, Mr. Moffat was awarded an MBE for services to equality and diversity in education. The report said this is an inclusive school that celebrates diversity. As a result, pupils demonstrate respect for an individual's age, disability, gender, or gender reassignment, sexuality, race, religion, or belief. In a joint statement outlining concerns by parents, Mr. Moffat and Hazel Pulley, CEO of Excelsior Multi-Academy Trust, said Parkville Community School have no plans to change their curriculum, and No Outsiders remains an integral part of the drive for excellence. They added, the No Outsiders program teaches children that everyone is welcome. It was created in 2014 by Andrew Moffat, assistant head at Parkfield Community School and piloted at the school. The aim was to find a way to teach children about the Equality Act 2010, developing an understanding of British values through an inclusive curriculum and school ethos. Key element of the No Outsiders ethos is engagement with parents from the start in order to promote solid foundations of tolerance and a match both in and outside the school gates. 98% of the children at Parkfield practiced the Islamic faith and initially this presented tension within some aspects of the No Outsiders, specifically the acceptance of LGBT equality. Through parent workshops where resources and discussions were shared in the early stages of the pilot, the school was able to move forward with the support of the parent community. In the last four years, the No Outsiders ethos has blossomed as an integral part of the school. An outstanding Ofsted report in 2016 recognised No Outsiders as a key strength in the school. In December 2018, a small group of parents at Parkfield School voiced concern about proposed government changes to the teaching of the SRE sets and relationship education schools for 2020. Specifically, the schools would be forced to teach the subject and parents would be unable to withdraw children. Parkfield School SRE has been taught for the last three years, always in July to year three, year five and year six. Every year before the lessons are delivered, parents are invited to review materials used and are given the option of removing children from the lessons if they wish. In the first week of January 2019, Parkfield School received a steady stream of inquiries about the teaching of SRE and linking no outsiders to SRE. Parents were concerned that the school was promoting homosexuality and indoctrinating their children to be gay. The head teacher David Williams and Andrew Moffat have met any parent asking for a meeting 
parenting and we're currently meeting parents about this at least once every day. No outsider's resources are shown and usually parents leave appearing to be reassured and happy with the explanation. Presently, these meetings have been curtailed due to them becoming personal and aggressive. However, a small group of parents are collecting petitions on the school gate to stop the sexualization of children. On Monday, January 11th, Andrew Moffat approached the parents to ask what the petition was about. Unbeknown to Andrew, he was filmed by a parent and this film was later put on social media. A member of the public phoned the school on Thursday, January 17th to say the film of Mr. Moffat will be bad for his health. Many parents told the school they felt pressure to sign the petition but didn't really support it. Some parents are openly refusing to sign. On Friday, January the 18th, the school was leafleted at home time. On Saturday, February 2nd, there were two public meetings in the community about the teaching of SRE. Central to everything we do is our duty to safeguard all children. As part of our safeguarding duty, we have to ensure we safeguard and protect them from all possible forms of harm, including homophobic or transgender bullying. No Outsiders allows us to raise awareness of these differences so that children are able to tolerate and accept differences in our society. Well, they say there's two sides to every story, and this story is two-sided. First of all, it's nothing less than child abuse for any parent to impose their religious beliefs on their child. If a Muslim child wants to be gay and their Muslim parents don't like it, then tough. The child has a right to be whatever sexual orientation they choose and to live and believe as they choose. Having said that, this is nothing to do with challenging stereotypes or ideas of gender. It's pure propaganda on behalf of the no gender agenda, which I talk about in episodes 8 and 25, as well as other episodes. Kids think stereotypically. They're kids. We give kids stereotypes. For example, we introduce them to different kinds of people in society. This is a teacher. They teach you what you need to know. They teach at school. This is a policeman. They help keep us safe. They wear these clothes. This is a fireman. They go to work in a fire engine. They help keep us safe. When you get older, you realise these stereotypes are very simplistic and cookie-cutter. And you find out the truth about the stereotypes and you find that there's shades of grey. Well, you do if you're not progressive or of the PC mob, anyway. But when you're a kid, stereotypes, cardboard cutout characters are very effective in introducing kids to concepts. That's the time when we should be giving them stereotypes, and we do. I heard a very interesting theory the other day, and it is only a theory. But someone was saying that, and I think it's a very astute observation that kids are given stereotypes about boy and girl because that's actually healthy for their sexual development. If kids start mixing their ideas of gender and the expression of gender early, then what would that mean for their sexual preference as they get older, when they start developing feelings and curiosity for the opposite sex? Maybe kids are supposed to have very clear, distinctive lines drawn between boy and girl so that they'll have the full range of feelings for the opposite gender at the time when those feelings happen. If you mix the idea of gender too early, are you diminishing those feelings come that time? I don't know myself, as I say, it's just a theory I've heard, but I think it's worth pondering. Are kids less likely to pursue their sexuality in the way they would have done otherwise? if you start mixing the ideas of gender and sexuality too early. As I say, I've talked before about education. It's a perception programming system, not just in terms of what kids get taught, but in terms of school life, with the word life in inverted commas. And in those episodes, I explain this in more detail. And this gender agenda is being imposed upon kids in school because it's the agenda. The teachers won't know that. The teachers will think it's about inclusivity and trying to encourage lack of discrimination, but ultimately it's 
promoting the no gender agenda. Transgender and fluid gender have suddenly catapulted into the public arena so quickly because the world the elite's agenda has in mind is so different to the world we live in now that there needs to be constant propaganda and this is what we're seeing. And the final subject this week is the Holocaust. This is in The Guardian. One in 20 Britons do not believe Holocaust took place, poll finds. One in 20 British adults do not believe the Holocaust happened and 8% say that the scale of the genocide has been exaggerated according to a poll marking Holocaust Memorial Day. Almost half of those questions said they did not know how many Jews were murdered in the Holocaust and one in five grossly underestimated the number, saying that fewer than 2 million were killed. At least 6 million Jews died. The poll commissioned by the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, a charity established and funded by the UK government to promote and support the International Day of Remembrance, echoes the findings of a survey carried out in seven European countries in November. That poll found that one in three people knew little or nothing about the Holocaust, and an average of 5% said they had never heard of it. In France, 20% of those aged 18 to 34 said they had never heard of the Holocaust. In Austria, the figure was 12%. A survey in the US last year found that 9% of millennials said they had not heard or did not think they had heard of the Holocaust. The scale of ignorance about the Holocaust, millennials are those who reached adulthood around the turn of the 21st century. The scale of ignorance about the Holocaust has shocked experts. Olivia Marks Waldman of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust said, I must stress that I don't think the poll respondents are active Holocaust deniers, people who deliberately propagate and disseminate vile distortions. Their ignorance means they are susceptible to myths and distortions. The article goes on. The Holocaust is taught in schools as part of the history curriculum, but that might only be one lesson, she added, and people who are middle-aged or over may never have been taught about it. Stephen Frank who was one of only 93 children to survive the Theresienstadt camp, said, I find these figures terribly worrying. In my experience, people don't have a solid understanding of what happened during the Holocaust, and that's one reason I'm so committed to sharing what happened to me. At one of my talks, I met someone who said the Holocaust didn't happen. The only way to fight this kind of denial and anti-Semitism is with the truth. I tell people what happened, what I saw and experienced. If we ignore the past, I fear history will repeat itself. The article goes on. Education was vital in the fight against ignorance and hate, said Karen Pollock of the Holocaust Educational Trust. One person questioning the truth of the Holocaust is one too many, and so it is up to us to redouble our efforts to ensure future generations know that it did happen and become witnesses to one of the darkest episodes in our history. The Trust's poll also found that 83% of those questions said it was important to know about the Holocaust and 76% believe more needs to be done to educate people. Holocaust Memorial Day will be marked by a national commemorative event in central London on Sunday. This was published on the 27th. Holocaust Memorial Day will be marked by a national commemorative event in central London on Sunday. This was published on the 27th of January. Attended by senior politicians, faith leaders and survivors, more than 11,000 activities and events are planned across the UK. Yesterday, Rachel Riley, the countdown presenter, said she was to be given extra security on the show after receiving online abuse over her comments on anti-Semitism and the Labour Party. The mathematician, who is Jewish, told the Times, with the hashtag Get the Tories Out or the Red Rose or hashtag JC4PM, in other words, Jeremy Corbyn for Prime Minister, they say to me, you're only calling out the left. Well, I've been attacked by people on the left, and the best way not 
to have me talk about anti-Semitism on the left is not to be anti-Semitic. The article goes on. The Remembrance Day will also mark the 25th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, which began in April 1994, and the 40th anniversary of the Cambodia genocide's end. Moshe Kantor, president of the European Jewish Congress, said as each year the number of Holocaust survivors able to share their personal testimony diminishes, our responsibility to honour their experience, to educate the uninitiated, grows ever greater if we are to ensure that Jews can live as safely as all other European citizens. On the 27th of January, the world will unite to remember all the victims of the Holocaust. Let their voices give us the call to action we need to work together united to ensure the future of the Europe we know. Well, first of all, people have every right to believe the Holocaust never happened. I'm not saying it didn't. My view is that it did happen, as claimed. But what kind of society do we live in where it's seen as wrong to think differently about or to question details about a historical event that it's seen as hate crime to do that. You question any other historical event and you'll either get no backlash or nothing like the backlash and the comeback that you get for questioning the Holocaust. Why? George Orwell said, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. In other words, if you have a manipulated idea of your history, then you'll have a manipulated idea of where you are in the present. I talked about historical revision and cultural revision in episode 46 and the way that's playing out now through political correctness. These Zionist anti-defamation, defamation groups, which don't represent Jewish people. Zionism is not about Jewish people. There's two types of Zionism. There's regular Zionism, and then there's elite Zionism. And that's the kind I'm talking about. And that does not require you to be Jewish if you want to be part of it. It just requires that you agree to be an agent for Israel, basically. These groups who talk about Holocaust denial being a hate crime should look themselves in the mirror. Because what they're doing is far, far worse than questioning or revision of a historical event. They're exploiting those who did die in Nazi Germany to advance a political agenda now, while claiming to represent Jewish people. It's sickening and grotesque, and they have the nerve to condemn and, in other cases, lie about Holocaust denial and about what more public figures saying just to try to discredit or silence their targets or threaten venues to counsel public events of speakers questioning and exposing the Israeli regime because that's what this is really about not Jewish people as I've just explained but Israel and its enforcement network Zionism particularly revisionist Zionism or elite Zionism these Zionists are fine ones to talk about the Holocaust and the treatment of Jewish people and racism when, through elite Zionism and Israel, Palestinians are facing daily genocide in an open-air concentration camp called Gaza. I agree that those who died in Nazi Germany should be remembered, and of course it's wrong to say they didn't die when they did, but that shouldn't mean it's wrong or a crime to question the event. Also, wouldn't the families and loved ones of those who died in the Holocaust want to know the true story of that event, rather than be fed a manipulated version of history just to suit a political agenda. We're seeing constant efforts to censor anything challenging and exposing Israel and Zionism, and the Holocaust is one of the methods used for this, and the truth needs to be revealed. Because when it is, for reasons I explained in episode 10, where I talk about this censorship of the truth of Israel and Zionism, the bigger picture of global manipulation and control is revealed. And that's the real reason for the censorship, and that's why the truth must be spoken now more than ever. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay per view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.